Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week was one of your picks, so would you like to do the honors? Sure thing. Uh, as part of Wet Hot Mutant Summer, I decided we should read Uncanny X-Men 232 to 234, which is the brood arc during the Outback period. Hell yeah. Uh, so I guess two things probably need explaining heading into this. One, the Outback period is the time after the big event, Fall of the Mutants, where, uh, everyone thinks the X-Men are dead, and they now live in the Australian Outback and go on missions, um, worldwide using a new teleporter character called Gateway. Madeline Pry is there, which is important in these issues, and the brood are basically alien, except you turn into one when they infect you, instead of one of them growing out of you. The brood are very high up candidates for my favorite X-Men villains ever, because they just look so fucking cool. So if you're listening to this and don't know what they look like, I recommend a Google image search, because... Because a lot of the appeal, I think, is just how brilliant the design is. It's definitely up there. But I, I like the way that the stories use them. I mean, we'll go into it in this, but they're able to tie them into the mutants because they retain the powers and abilities of the host bodies. And the queens are actually able to spread that like through all of the embryos. And so it becomes a thing where they see mutants as a resource. Yeah, they're the sort of, like, aliens that use other species as host bodies. And the stronger the host body, the worse the situation gets. And it just keeps building and building. So the X-Men have to fight against a, it's a mutant cultural appropriation, which in this case is... <laughs> hey, this one can breathe fire now. Mutant cultural appropriation... But yeah, uh, before we dive fully into the plot, I'll do the obligatory roll call. This is Chris Claremont era writing the Uncanny X-Men. We have Mark Silvestri on pencils, who both of us, I think it's safe to say, think is among the best pencilers in the franchise's history. He's uh, arguably my favorite. Yeah, he fucking slaps. 
Then Dan Green is the inker on the first two issues. And we have Joseph Rubenstein for number 244. Glynis Oliver is our colorist here. And Tom Orchichowski is the letterer. And plot-wise, these are from an era where comics weren't written for the trade yet. And it's Claremont, so you always have subplots going on. And I think there's sort of an interesting thing going on here where there's two main plots. And in terms of these free issues as like a collective story unto themselves, the A plot is everything with the brood. But then the B plot is the one that's probably more significant in the overall franchise history and it's basically the beginning of inferno of madeline Pryor. yeah maddie's stuff was basically the b plot in every issue of the uh, early part of the outback era the first half before inferno and i mean we'll dig into the stuff here the stuff here is the trippy dream sequence which i think is the best of the um all of the maddie stuff i think it's a top tier X-Men scene period. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have to explain Madeline Pryor when we get to, although I guess everyone kind of knows who she is. She's got her own X-Men book. She's got her own X-Men book. I think we can suffice to say, go listen to the 18 hour Cerebro episode on her. There you go. Literally do that. But if you need a one-minute summation. She's the woman that Cyclops married when he thought Jean Grey was dead. And then Jean Grey came back, and he abandoned her, and the baby he had of her. And as we will see in these issues, that rightfully pissed her off, and we'll go from there. She's also slowly but surely approaching the point where she's dating Scott's brother, Havoc, who's a big character in these issues, but because of the structure of them, they don't actually interact in the context of this story. Yeah, there's just sort of like pining of like there's a moment of Maddie just like having a thought bubble about him and stuff like that. But the action's too busy for them to actually have a scene here. Um, oh, one more thing before we go in this ish, these the storyline with the brood is kind of following up on something done before Fall of the Mutants, where um. Havoc and Polaris see some meteors and then are nearly hit by a car while they're going out to see them and they see that it was some kind of alien carcass. So Havoc goes to go get the X-Men to help, but he gets dragged into Fall of the Mutants and Polaris gets possessed by Malice. So they never are able to actually follow up on this. So this is the X-Men following up on something that was set up a while ago because it's Chris Claremont. And he's like, oh, here's a plot that I can do later. Yeah, it's it's 80s X-Men. Reading it is much more approachable than it might sound if you're not used to Claremont plots. Because although he explains everything. Yeah, they explain everything relatively fluidly. And also, I think it's pretty easy to jump right in and just be like, it's time for fun, disgusting aliens. Yep. And here we go. So we open not so long ago, because I guess we're already now in the point where Marvel's like, you know, maybe stop mentioning time passing. 
we see flashes of what the X-Men were doing at this time, uh, which is like, yeah, that little brief, it's post-mutant massacre, but pre-fall of the mutants. So that, that, that moment in time in the 80s. Uh, and then we go to a group of friends who are hanging out with a VW bus in the woods when they see a huge meteor in the sky, like it's big, bright, glowing light. And when they go to investigate, it looks like a shark, like a really big shark. And if you know the brood, you're already like, oh, oh no, because the brood fly around in space whales. But they've enslaved, right? Like, isn't that... Yeah, that's the whole deal with them. Yeah, it's an immediate, like, visual callback to the original Brood saga. And just, like, the flying space whales and a way of, for a long-time fan, just sort of having a panel that's, like, indicative of what's coming. While also, like, the humans on the ground don't know. So it's that sort of tension. And, um... I, this is actually, I think this is the second ever Brood story. Unless there's something someone else did. But in terms of, like, just the main X-Men title, this is the second time they've ever shown up. Yeah, if there's anything else that's really minor, it's basically the second time. Uh, and so, you know, they, the, the shark looks dead, and so one of them goes up near the head and starts poking at it. When the head turns and clearly eats her whole, and we get the caption sally harding 27 she was a teacher she wanted to be indiana jones over a panel of just this massive shark monster head like clearly about to swallow her and then the next panel is blood splattering on one of her friend's faces with the gigantic sound effect chomp it's really good like this scene is basically the friend who just watched her die like stumbling trying to get out of there and seeing the rest of his friends die as we get just like slowly more and more shots of the actual brood like we get a few in shadow moments before getting just like one panel with a full-on brood face before the scene transitions to him trying to run away and like as they all die each character has a caption like the one you just read that just like lays out like their name and a little character bio of like their job and what they like to do in a very like here's everyone getting picked off one by one sort of moment. Claremont loves giving someone who he's introduced just to die like a little a little thing to explain who they are and like what their deal is before he kills them. And it's effective every single time. It really works because it's like, even if it's literally one panel, one caption box, it's just like, okay, I've given this character a name and a little personality. So I'm selling you the idea that this is a human who's an actual casualty and sort of adds a level of depth beyond just the transparent, oh, you're here to die. Uh, and so when Harry Palmer is the name of the, the friend who's been watching everyone die, uh, drives away in his in the VW bus, that's where we get the scene from multiple issues ago at this point. I think it, it was like 20 issues earlier or something insane like that, because this it was the book was double shipping. Um, 
But that's when we get the like connection back to Alex and Lorna, uh, Havoc and Polaris while they were driving back then. Oh, also, it's it's important to mention that it's pretty clear that the Brood at least were able to grab Harry at some point. Yeah, like we don't get and... a full on clear infestation, but all is not well. Or like we don't get like a super explicit infestation, but we can tell something's happened. Yes. We cut to the present day in Denver, Colorado, where Harry is driving. Um, so he's working as a paramedic. He's driving an ambulance to um, essentially uh, someone's mutant power activated and it he breathes fire, didn't mean to. And so, you know, the fire department's put out the fire and stuff and they're here to try and help the guy. Harry and his fellow paramedic both have all everyone leave the scene before they tend to him because as soon as they're all gone Harry's hand turns into and, and this is a detail I really love it's just a claw it's like it's not an evil hand it's just not a hand anymore it's just a claw on the end of a weird like brood arm it's almost kind of silly even but I love it too yeah well it, because it's it's so divorced from human anatomy yeah. Like he's not it's it's just like oh it just suddenly turns it's just between panels too. We never see like a mid state. Like it's it's almost implied that his hand is just like always that and it's just somehow everyone just doesn't see it. And uh he like pierces this guy with it, which is how you infect someone with a brood embryo. And uh we cut back to, well, we cut now to the Australian outback base where the X-Men have been living. Um so Gateway who is a aboriginal um like I don't want to say mystic but I guess he kind of is. Um who's been working with the X-Men lately. He's been like using his uh teleportation mutant ability to send people place send them places on missions and in this case he uses it to open up a gateway which Madeline Pryor steps through. Their base. Have you read the earlier stuff in the Outback period? I've never actually just like read it through normally. So I'm sure I probably read a teeny bit mixed around, but the short answer is not really. Okay. Well, the reason their base looks so evil is because they got it off of the Reapers. Yeah. Reapers, which that's where Madeline Pryor is now. She's been using the uh, computers and helping the team and. She's currently in her, um, was it Sue Dibney phase, where she's the normal human who's helping them out. She's helping but them Candy, out. Sorry. Candy Seven on the Defenders. She's helping them out, but there's still a certain sense of like awkwardness and separation. Like we get her arriving to the base with everyone else not being there. And she's, like, done up in a new, like, short dress and just has, like, this thought bubble. Typical. New hairstyle, new outfit, and nobody around to tell me how absolutely great I look. Story of my life. Yeah, so, like, she's been feeling pretty isolated from them already just because they're all able to go on missions as mutants and this isn't exactly the life that she plans. She's just, you know got the marauders after her for some unknown reason and uh well this is the start of her dark turn if if people have been hanging out here 
if the X-Men had, like, just stuck around or left someone there for when Madeline got back, Inferno wouldn't have fucking happened. <laughs> it's because she's left entirely alone to dwell and then be preyed upon. But in this scene, she turns on one of the monitors and sees on TV Cyclops and a woman she hasn't seen before, but she instantly knows is Jean Grey, the woman that Scott loved who died before they met and now is somehow back. And Maddie knows that this is why Scott up and left her. Yeah, that's that's um so at this point in time Cyclops is an X Factor with the rest of the original five X Men, um, including the recently like returned from the dead Jean Grey. Uh Scott thinks Madeline died because Maddie like died on TV in Fall of the Mutants with the other X Men, and they all got resurrected by um Roma, who's Merlin's daughter from like Excalibur and Captain Britain. And, and so he and Jean, despite feeling bad, did immediately start getting together again as soon as Maddie was dead. Yeah. And I mean, Maddie's right. She, Scott did leave when he heard that Jean was alive, but um, he, he tried to call her back, but she'd already been attacked by the Marauders at that point. It's a very messy situation. Meanwhile, we get... What was this man's name again? Uh, It's Harry... Palmer, I want to say. Palmer? Meanwhile, we flash back to Harry Palmer, who it's a misty night. There's just like a page of him walking his groceries home, arrives at his apartment, and when he opens the door, he finds that the X-Men are here to talk to him. And he, despite not having met them before, immediately feels threatened and knows who they are and it's sort of the scene of him fighting them without even fully understanding why he's doing it um i'll specifically say the x-men present here he's fighting psylocke and colossus and havoc Psylocke in her really cool outback design with the the armor plates this is this is pre her body swapping with an Asian woman. So this is when you can still enjoy Betsy Braddock. Yeah, this was Psylocke as a white woman before she became just the incredibly sexualized ninja character for 20 years, 30 years, a long time. It was, yeah, it was 30, because it's like 89. It's like the first thing after, well... No, it's probably 1990 flat, I'd say. So, 28 years? Yeah. But as he's fighting them, Tom Palmer quickly shows that he has strength beyond a base human. Again, you know, he's been brooded up. He literally just lifts Colossus up over his head and throws him at Psylocke like it's nothing. And Colossus is in his steel form, and there's a big emphasis on how, like, strong and powerful Colossus is in this period. Yeah. Like, this dude is not light. He's very heavy. It's it's impressive that he's able to throw him. And as he's doing all of this, we get a bunch of uh, thought balloons with Tom just being like, what's happening to me? 
his human self doesn't fully understand any of what's happened with the brood transformation and the rest of the X-Men show up in these coming pages helping out. We've got Rogue, Dazzler, Longshot, and then Storm and Wolverine. But by the time the full group is assembled, Palmer has pretty much gotten away. And we basically have the team discussing the brood, which Storm, Wolverine, and Colossus are the only ones who fought them before because they're the only ones who were in the X-Men and the original Brood Saga. So a good half the team doesn't really know what they're up against. But More than. Yeah. And Wolverine is essentially the one who's able to track the Brood because Super Smell, all of that. And... Specifically, he can smell when someone is a Brood. Yeah. And there's basically talk of planning and the brood needing to be eliminated but storm specifically says that she wants this man alive because they need to find out just how many other people and who he's already implanted of brood eggs before they kill him because otherwise they won't have any idea what to do next and the infestation will just keep getting worse so harry palmer runs and um he gets on a bus but of course, sitting on the bus is Rogue, because she somehow got ahead of him. Um, he immediately knows she's one of the X-Men, and starts attacking her, and once again, his like hand turns into that single claw, as he says, This is a moment long overdue, little ex-girl, and a vengeance well worth the wait. Because uh, the Brood have like a hive mind kind of thing. Like, kind of. It's It's not quite a hive mind. Um, but clearly this, the brood side of him remembers the X-Men having defeated them before and is now ready to take revenge. The Wolverine is able to stop him at the last second and Palmer like is like, what on earth was I about to do? What's happening? Yeah. The bus explodes. <laughs> Absolute chaos. Uh, the bus driver apparently just gets away off panel. Uh, Wolverine goes after Palmer because he's escaped into an, an alleyway. But it's uh, it's a dead end. Rogue is also fine because explosions don't really do anything to Rogue because this is when she has her Ms. Marvel abilities still. The Carol Danvers powers. And at this point, the police show up and they see Harry and basically recognize him from working with him in emergency services. So this is good luck for Harry. and. Wolverine appears to immediately attack the cops, which Rogue Wolverine is just... Wolverine kills one of them. He says, A-cab, all cops are brood. Yeah, the cops are literally brood. Rogue's like, what the fuck, but brood. And at this point, the rest of the X-Men show up just in time for Harry to begin a more drastic brood transformation, fully aliened up face. And just a shitload of other brood all descend from the sides of the buildings in the alleyway so that they're suddenly surrounding the X-Men from all sides. And they're all in, like, different, like, brood transformation states, which is another cool thing. Like, some of them still have hair, some of them still have clothes, some of them are, like, full brood with all the 
weird spindly legs they have. And then there's Harry, who's just got, like, brood claw hands and a brood face. Like, I really like the, the variety of weird monster designs and the emphasis in the story on, yeah, no, they've, they've transformed people. This is really fucked up. Yeah, it makes clear that the infestation is already quite widespread and also visually just signifies the inhumanity of it by, like, showing you all the stages at once. And so we head into issue 233... Uh, the brood start attacking X-Men with their superpowers. Uh, one of them is now breathing fire because it's this brood is the guy from the last issue who Harry supposedly saved, but actually just infested with a brood embryo. Yep, because as we touched on earlier, he has been specifically targeting mutants when selecting who to infect to make the best invasion force he can. Colossus winds up in a fight with a brood with super strength who apparently goes by the name Brickbat. Yeah, the, like, brooded-up mutants pretty much all immediately gave themselves, like, mutant code names, which is kind of like, (laughs) oh, did the brood really care that much? But I guess they did. This is why I'm like, you know, it, it. they have a hive mind vibe because they're all taken over by their broodiness, but they're still all individual enough to be like, yeah, but I need like a cool code name though. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be the brood that hits stuff real well. I got to have a name. I'm the brood who breathes fire. I have to have a name. I'm the brood with the freaky pheromone powers. I need a name. It's really important to me. Which on a practical level, it does sort of aid like differentiation of which brood is which since these are much more individuated characters than in the original brood saga since them targeting mutants means that there's much more difference in each individual brood's ability than if you just did a generic brood swarm it also stops the x-men from constantly just having to say the brood with the pheromone powers they can just say that brood's name yeah uh, speaking of which, Storm, you know, flies up but gets caught by Tension, who is a brood with what I can only call Mr. Fantastic powers. He seems to be stretchy. It's like Mr. Fantastic, but using it specifically in like a boa constrictor way of just like latching on and applying total pressure and very snaky sort of use. And this is where Temptress shows up, who is the brood with the pheromone powers that we mentioned, who starts trying to get Storm to obey her and do anything to make tension hap- uh, to make Temptress happy. And Storm, for once resisting a woman in the Claremont X-Men run, is able to push back against this power and say no. We also get then Dive Bobber, who is a brood with wings, who flies off to go after storm because she's like flying off a bit panicked after pushing off of pushing off temptress's abilities and we get a bit where havoc has a clear shot but he's too scared of using his powers because if he uses them on a human he'll kill them because havoc is very much a pacifist he's only really a reluctant member of the x-men he basically joined because he accidentally walked in on them planning on faking their own deaths And then he helped them out with the whole world ending in Dallas and with fighting his mind-controlled girlfriend. And 
then he just sort of wound up dragged into this era because they all got killed in Dallas and resurrected here in Australia. So he doesn't really want to be here. He doesn't like doing fighting stuff. And he's really terrified of his abilities because they're so powerful. Yeah, he's someone who, both here and in overall franchise history, is a character who's like, mutant circumstances sort of necessitate him getting dragged into situations more so than him being an especially like passionate character ideologically or anything like that half the time he's being mind controlled or like manipulated by the avengers slash u.s government into being involved in this stuff he he really only winds up stuck in all of this so often because he's cyclops's brother which is like his biggest his biggest problem as a character is being like oh i'm cyclops's brother this sucks and essentially a bulk of this issue was just more extended fights between the X-Men and the various Brood. Basically, the Brood recognize from before that Wolverine is their biggest threat because he possesses none of the hesitancy that the rest of the characters, and most especially Havoc, have because Wolverine very much recognizes that the human beings have no actual control you know, they may as well be dead. They'll never control themselves again. So he's willing to slice and dice the brood in a way no one else is. And the brood essentially choose to have their sort of like seductress, hormone, telepathy character take over Betsy, who can then take over Rogue as the main brute to sort of like no, keep it's, it's, Wolverine in check. It's better than that. Rogue accidentally touches Temptress, and Temptress's mind is strong enough to overpower Rogue's when Rogue absorbs her psyche, and then Rogue uses the Temptress powers on Psylocke. Right, yeah, like, Temptress It's mind control three ways, because this is a Chris Claremont comic. All of which happens in, like, four panels to boot. Yeah, um, so, yeah, with Colossus sort of sent off Fighting the super strong brood, Wolverine's taken out by the combined power, like pheromone control and mind control, and gets infected with a brood embryo. Meanwhile, we cut to a, uh, I, it's a big church in the Rocky Mountains, like an amphitheater that they set up for a big religious thing that's happening called uh, Glory Day Crusade. This sounds like it's a horrible thing because it's religion in an X-Men comic, but it actually isn't for once. This is the one time it's not. It's setting up a very, like, there's hope. Some humans support us and, you know, people can be people together, sort of pay off later. But we're basically just, like, watching all these workers set up for the event. And while we're there, we see a paramedic. Uh, Josie Thomas, Harry Palmer's partner, and we're immediately like, oh no, because it doesn't have to explicitly tell us she's a brood, you know, to just be like, oh god. Uh, And we have a scene between William, whatever his last name is, it says somewhere, William Conover, Reverend William Conover's, like, he's the, the, the 
religious leader who like runs this whole thing and him and his wife have a discussion because they're hearing about the big fight on the radio where like they're assuming it's mutants and I, I basically Conover's sort of like yeah it really sucks that people hate mutants he's like it's dumb it's just as dumb as racism it's as dumb as all of these things uh and he expresses like that he kind of wishes he was a mutant with healing abilities because he um his wife has really bad arthritis uh we'll come back to these characters later but now we go back to the big fight uh we have in addition to everyone assuming that like the mutants are actually like everyone here in the situation is a mutant and that the brood aren't like something mutants are trying to stop the confusion with the media is enhanced by the fact that none of the X-Men can currently be picked up by any electronic technology because of the thing that Roma did. So, like, this is just a plot point in the Outback era, but the X-Men, for now at least, are, like, you can't videotape them. They can't be picked up on cameras or anything like that to help them stay undercover and keep, like, the fact that they've now essentially faked their deaths is kept secret that way. Yeah, um... Meanwhile, Storm is isolated from the rest of the team because she has flown up into the air to deal with the flying brood mutants who essentially tries to control Storm's movements by attacking an airplane with the idea that Storm will then have to go intervene to save it because she's Storm. And then at that point, the Brood will then make his attack upon her. And that's basically exactly what happens. We get just like two pages of this aircraft going down and podcasting, audio medium, can't really convey how it looks but it looks really nice. The coloration and the motion and everything all just works really well. The thing is, these are relatively dense issues. Like, we're only discussing three issues here. And there will frequently be a page where the point A to point B of the beginning to the end covers so much more ground than a lot of other comics do, especially in terms of contemporary stuff. You know, like, it's very anti-Bendis in how it flows. Claremont's a very dense writer already, and then, like, back in the 80s, the style was also tended denser, and so Claremont 80s stuff is just very, very dense. There's a lot in each issue. Yeah, and after she saves the plane, Storm gets got, gets beat upside the head, knocked out by the brood. And we then cut to a dream that Maddie Pryor is having, where she's up in the sky, she's flying. And for most of the sequence, it's not dialogue. It's just like the images of the dream with some captioning describing them. And I'll read some portions of it. As far back as she can remember, Madeline Pryor dreamed of soaring through the sky to the stars and beyond. Only love for this man, Scott Summers, could make her give that up. 
It's as though he's the missing piece of her soul. From the moment they met, she knew they were made for each other. In his arms, she feels whole, fulfilled, happy. And when she bore their son, well, that made things even better. Theirs was a future of infinite possibilities. In her joy, the rush of the moment, she never fought to consider that some might be bad. That's Chris Claremont for you. <laughs> working it out the best part of this dream sequence is so shortly after this scott who is now in his full like x-men outfit specifically like the one he wore while he and madeline were getting together not his like current x-factor outfit from this point in the comic are confronted by a like it looks essentially like a blank empty mannequin like a woman you know, it's got no face, no features, just sort of like a naked skin thing. Um, but Scott is like really down to make out with it. And specifically he says, when the figure reaches out to Scott in yearning supplication, he responds gladly with an eager, wholehearted passion he never felt for her. And so, and this pit here ties into sort of Madeline's general resentment of the X-Men having abilities when you know, her lack of superpowers or why she couldn't protect her child from the Marauders and why she's now having to try and find him. Like, that's a big part of her character in this era. Um, so Scott reaches out and says, time to lose those wings, Maddie. You're not supposed to have them anyway. You can't really fly. You're not special like us. You're only human. And he pulls the wings off of her. As he's holding the mannequin woman's hand and... Then, after grabbing the wings, next he grabs the baby from Madeline's arms and is saying, Can't keep him either. He's a mutant, sweetheart. He should be raised by his own kind. See how happy he looks? You couldn't take that away from him, could you? And it's a lot of Scott talking to Maddie in the most dismissive way possible, and, you know, she'll have brief interjections asking how he can do this as he continues just taking and taking from her. Because after he's taken the wings and the baby, he then proceeds to plop the hair off of her head, leaving her bald-headed, puts the hair on the mannequin, and then proceeds to continue doing the same with all of her facial features taking the mouth and then the nose and then the eyes and placing them on the mannequin so that it's become the image of Jean Grey, while Maddie has now become the mannequin and has no mouth with which to scream and no eyes with which to even continue looking at what's going on around her. She has been made completely inhuman and completely incapable of expressing herself while the mannequin, like, suddenly purifies clothes and Scott's uniform changes so that it is specifically Scott and Jean in their present-day X-Factor outfits holding Maddie's child. And I'll just go ahead and read again some of Scott's dialogue because it's important. First, I'll start with Maddie going, how can you do this? I love you. To which Scott says, I know, and I'm really sorry, but I loved someone else first and best. 
her needs take priority. There, that's better. Essie took the hair and put it on the mannequin. A few more details. The finishing touches pulled from the copy and the original will be restored. Good as new. I love Jean Grey, Maddie. Always have. Always will. When I thought she was dead, I felt like someone had ripped out my heart. It was wrong of me to turn to you to take her place. I never meant to hurt you. But once I discovered Jean was alive, I had to go back to her. I'll never lose her again. Goodbye, Maddie. At which point, Maddie's been rendered completely the mannequin. Scott and Jean disappear. And the dramatic narrator captions say, She would scream, but she has no mouth. A nothing being and a nowhere place. Abandoned and alone. Girl. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is great. It's just, the, the mannequin is so horrifying. It's so horrifying and such a perfect visual metaphor. Is being set up here, because they hadn't established that yet. That's not established until, like, halfway through Inferno. But that's actually what Madeline Pryor is. And this setup is great. But it also, like, you know that this dream is more than just Madeline having a bad dream. Because she recognized that something about the dream knows that she's a copy of Jean. Yeah. It's which is new information. For me, this is like the pivotal, most like significant and overall like just really selling the whole thing of just like what the whole dynamic between Scott, Jean, and Maddie is, and specifically the Maddie as a person who felt completely and utterly like a person unto herself just to have her identity ripped away from her and her baby ripped away from her and just basically find her entire life falling to pieces through essentially no fault of her own. Yeah, Maddie didn't do anything. And Scott didn't mean to do as much as he did, but he definitely did wrong. Jean didn't really do anything, aside from come back to life, which she kind of resented, frankly, at this point. Nobody's having a good time here, but Maddie's definitely having the worst time. Yeah, it's just an excellent sequence. But it's the B-plot. All of this is only the B-plot. And we move forward again to the brood attack on the X-Men and Havoc sort of has his moment of crisis of having his pacifism challenged where the time comes where he sees no way to save Storm other than just killing the brood that's holding on to her. And so he does that pivotal moment of actually using his powers and actually joining the fight to save Storm. And we then get like a dramatic two panels of Colossus having also done what needed to be done as he sort of like marches forward out of the midst of a building that he's just destroyed as he killed yet another one of the brood and the brood. It's so cool. It's really cool. 
the building collapses and everyone's like, like oh, uh, uh, oh gosh, which one? Which one's one? Something's moving, and then you just see Colossus coming out. Like he's, he's backlit by the fire behind him, and then he just throws the corpse of this brood onto the ground in front of him. And... He's in his big steel man wearing underwear, and that's it. Phase, which is actually kind of Colossus's best look. Yeah, the thing of Colossus is at a certain point. It's like you can change the look a little bit, but once you cover up a certain amount of skin, it's like you've missed the entire point because he just needs to look big and imposing and made of metal. He should just be wearing shorts or briefs or something like that all the time, and that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. There's a sense that the tide of the battle is beginning to turn, although the brood have not given up. They're sort of doing a little bit of a strategic retreat for the moment as Storm, Colossus, and Havoc have their moment of just fully acknowledging what they have to do because they're watching the brood that Havoc killed revert to its original human-looking form and Havoc is obviously angsty, understandably so, but Storm being the clear-headed one or maybe clear head's not the right word, but Storm just, you know, being the leader who knows what needs to be done, just tells Havoc what he needs to hear about how this human's life ended the moment that he was impregnated by the brood, and the Havoc has done him a favor by putting him out of his misery, and Harry Palmer is the one at fault for all this, and so they need to go and eradicate all of the remaining brood, or else the planet itself is doomed, which is how the issue ends with just a resolution by the characters of we need to end this shit now. It's also important to note that Rogue and Psylocke are still under like brood control from Rogue having um Temptress's power now. Yeah. So, like, these three X-Men are the only X-Men left standing, because Wolverine's infected with a brood embryo, and then two of them have swapped sides for now. Yeah. Oh, and there's Dazzler, but she's, like, not here at the moment for some reason. Speaking of Dazzler, uh, at the start of the next issue, Dazzler is flies into a diner fighting another one of the brood, and there's basically this big brawl in this diner, Initially, because she's the one in the outfit and she's the one who's visibly using powers, uh, a lot of the people in the diner are like, oh, that that mutant's, you know, attacking this innocent person and start grabbing at her, trying to stop her. When um, the brood she was fighting is the guy who can breathe fire, so he breathes fire. And Whip Hand, who might be the one who, at least in brute form, kind of looked like he had Mr. Fantastic powers... But here, using his, like, human form as a disguise, looks like he has sort of energy tentacle arms. Uh, it's whip hand shows up, too. And so, you know, as the brood sort of look more broody, all the humans in the diner are like, oh, wait, these are bug-eyed monsters. Okay, we'll fight them instead. And, you know, any humans who do step up are just, like, immediately grabbed and getting knocked on their asses. Longshot shows up. Throwing knives. Yeah, like, the brood have very much learned the 
usefulness of reverting to human form strategically to just like fool opponents and bystanders to their advantage like tricking them to believing that there's any actual human presence left in terms of long shot showing up this isn't a plot point and again audio medium but it needs to be noted how cool he looks because he's just in this full head-to-toe leather jumpsuit and just the way that it's rendered with like the pure white shine on the all-black pants and then like blonde mohawk it just looks fucking cool and I think probably looks the best when Silvestri is drawing him like I think Longshot is one of those characters where how cool or not he looks is specifically on the artist and Silvestri is among the best. Silvestri might be second only to Art Adams at drawing Longshot. Um, but I love the way that uh, Silvestri renders like shiny black leather or spandex because he does the same thing with Storm's outfit in this period, which is what leads to that white Jim Lee design is because everyone misread the shiny black as like white or silver because of the like harsh highlights but when you look at these comics like well no that's a black outfit that's a very shiny black outfit it's just really effective use of white as shading like a means of showing the way that like light ripples and reflects but god it looks fucking cool the x-men all look great because um Havoc is in his classic outfit with, like, the flat black, where, like, there's no shading inside his body at all. He's just, like, a silhouette, and then the details for the neck piece and the head, his face, and, like, the circular, like, energy emanating from his chest. It's a never-all-timer. Yeah, yeah, the, like, old Neil Adams design that Sylvester does a great job with here. Rogue with her huge 80s hair. Like, they all look so good. Yeah. The Outback, like, era is just, like, a really, really great moment for X-Men costume design, in my opinion. Yeah, Storms and the all-black lover as well, like you said. And Wolverine is specifically in the, like, brown and yellow as opposed to the yellow and blue. And... I think the brown and yellow is the better of the two classic suits as well. They all just look more or less their absolute best. Yeah, if you have to pick, always go with the brown and yellow. That's what he's wearing now, because they were like, okay, which classic Wolverine costume? And it's like, it's obvious which one's better. And it especially just fits, like, the era of him being an X-Force and stuff better, since it's the one that's, like, slightly less bright and gaudy. It just fits his sort of like i'm the grumpier hard ass less like bright and cheerful superhero sort of thing yeah speaking of less bright and cheerful characters um so whip hand has managed to use like his electrically powered arms or whatever the hell this is to capture long shot when right up behind him walks Colossus, who completely no expression on his face, no anything, snaps his neck. To be clear, Whip Hand is in like fully human form at this point, so it does just look like Colossus stand walks up behind someone and just snaps his neck. 
immediately. No expression, no anything. Yeah, it's like one panel is him with his arm around the guy. And the next is a close-up on the patrons of the diner looking shocked as there's a gigantic snap sound effect. And we talked for a minute about the comics code last week. And I'll note again that this is also a comics code comic and that there is simply a lot you can get away with as long as you cut away at the exact moment and use a sound effect instead of showing the strangling on panel. Yep. Uh, this is continuing Colossus's darker turn since Fall of the Mutants when he um had to, like, kill... Well, when he wound up killing one of the uh, marauders in the sewers, and ever since then he's been on this, like, trend... Which actually ends in Inferno, where he's the only person who isn't infected by the Inferno, of like becoming a darker, sort of more likely to kill member of the X-Men. Storm vaporizes another one of the aliens, and um, so the only remaining one sort of flies away. There's a recurring joke that this entire time there's been a couple making out in the diner who haven't like noticed anything that's happened. And they both stop making out for a second, look up, see all the damage, and then just immediately resume making out. Which is, it, as a visual gag, I think it works. Meanwhile... And then, yeah, we cut we cut back to the dream sequence. Which is showing up on... So, again, sort of showing this is more than just a dream. We see the monitors and stuff in the river base that the X-Men have been using in the, um, in the outback. And showing up on the screens is Maddie's dream that we've seen so far. And Gateway is watching it. Yeah, Ga- Gateway is here. He just sort of seems vaguely disappointed in, like, what's happening, but he's not getting involved. He's specifically watching the mannequin form of Maddie in the dream do a literal Robert Frost reach a point like a fork in the road and then, like, go down one way, and she's in the desert, and she starts, like, melting, but it's, like, the mannequin melts in such a way that it all kind of, like, has a top layer that falls off, revealing Madeline's face again, and we get more great narration that I'll quote. Uh, The he in this quote is Gateway. He makes no move to help her, for that is not his purpose in the scheme of things, but simply watches. And if he's disappointed by her choice to wander out to the deep desert instead of back to town, it doesn't show. This is her fate, her destiny. There is no mercy to this land, nothing remotely soft or gentle. The sun is a furnace, the desert a forge, pairing her down to her essence making her one of the land. And when the weapon is tempered, it is cooled. The better to be owned to a killing edge and ultimately to be used. Again, just reinforcing Maddie as a character who is being acted upon. And if you know anything about Inferno, the gist is she is being manipulated into becoming the Goblin Queen, and Inferno's just gonna play out from here, because this is where we get the scene of 
her specifically meeting Sim, the demon from Limbo. Uh, yeah, the magic miniseries specifically. So this is this is the demon who was like working for Belasco and along with Belasco abused Ilyana Rasputina as a child. Yeah. This guy is no good. And this is just sort of a classic like talk with the devil sort of scene at one point during which he holds up his clawed hand and like each fingernail is an aspect or a possibility for Maddie. Like one is like a childhood self. One is her as a pilot. One is more or less like her now. Another has more of a wicked expression and still under the impression that this is some sort of dream Maddie sort of like gets talked into the idea that if it's just a dream, why not hurt Scott back? And Sim basically just does the dramatic reveal saying there are no dreams, only different shapes, different orders, different tastes of reality. And you've just bound yourself to mine because it's a very unwitting deal of the devil thing. And as she falls back in shock, she is now in the classic Goblin Queen costume. The underboob is here and it's going to try and kill Scott Summers. And it's a fucking great costume. It's a great costume. Like, it, it is the kind of costume where normally I would be annoyed by how much skin this female character is showing. But this one is just such a good costume that I don't give a shit. It's so extreme, you know, and it's also, it's like, A, so extreme that it's almost impossible to feel offended because it's so brazen, but then there's also just the context in which it's being used and what's happening with Maddie's character here as well, that it's just feels very different from, say, if next issue, if Dazzler was just wearing this with no explanation other than the artist being horny. The only X-Men who are allowed to be naked are the men. With Iceman and Colossus, everyone else should normally be wearing some kind of clothes. It is also helped by, if when you read Inferno for, like, multiple issues, Havoc is also in this outfit. Yeah. Well, like, they don't care who they put this outfit in, anyone can wear this one. But meanwhile... We flash back to the sort of like, it's not literally a mega church because it's like just a talk at the amphitheater, but you know, like the giant religious crowd thing that's going on. And we get, I forget, do they ever say that he specifically is a pastor or he just is like a reverend? A reverend, okay. Yeah, the, like, famous reverend, like, Christian influencer figure. William Conover, who is the anti-William striker. Yeah, and, like, that's re-emphasized with, like, someone around him using the word muty and him being like, stop doing that. And he's getting ready to go on stage while his wife with the arthritis is approached by the brutified paramedic Who's like, I can help you out. I can fix the arthritis. Um, so that isn't really followed up on in this comic, but do you know where this was supposed to be going? Have you heard about this? Not that I immediately recall. 
so pretty recently at like one of his uh panel appearances Chris Claremont alongside some other really insane things which like okay uh one of the storylines he never got to do with X-Men but wanted to do was the brood queen going to heaven heaven and like clearly that's this right like <laughs> the wife of the pastor is infected by the brood here right like that's what's happening <laughs> Like, and it's never followed up on. So far as I'm aware, this character doesn't show up again after this story. And, like, she doesn't go all brood in this. It's just this implication that there is more brood than the X-Men know about by the end. When we say heaven, do we mean this woman literally dying and her brood form going to heaven? I don't know. Claremont said this once. Like, this was in the same panel where he talked about, like, Kitty turning out to somehow be Storm's actual kid or something, and she has to decide whether she's going to be black or not, or something completely insane like that. Like, we're just... It, it, the only, like, it was a completely nuts appearance. My god. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. You know, he is in his 70s. <laughs> and this is... I, I, I always like Chris Claremont when he's got like an editor like he does here like and the edited these another thing if you're wondering why this is this is really good well and the returns from last episode to be the editor of this uh but yeah no um you should you should look that up i think i think it was the people from battle of the atom who like live tweeted it because it wasn't like recorded or anything yeah and they I were think... like hey he's saying some like wild crap in this one for some reason yeah and who knows how much of that was like joke by the way like i with Claremont's sense of humor these days, I'm sure a lot of that was him, like, just making off-color jokes, so not meaning any of it seriously. Sure. But the Brood Queen Heaven thing, I was like, oh my god, it's this one. It's this lady. He had some kind of plan for this lady. And, like, with the way the arc ends, it's clear that the possibility was laid for more Brood stuff. But anyway, back to the actual issue. The fight continues with um temptress has regained consciousness from when she got just like for um well, rogue, rogue took her out yeah rogue and temptress are flying with wolverine because temptress has regained consciousness after rogue took her out so the two of them are flying wolverine who is struggling with the brood infection, manages to claw his way free of them as the rest of the brood are sort of just driving their way along. They still have Psylocke captured. And as they're driving, Colossus appears in front of them in the middle of the road in steel form. And the car just crashes into him and immediately just bursts the fuck open Colossus is totally fine. It's another good just here's Colossus, the Titan sort of moment. And the fight just progresses with Psylocke being able to wrestle control of her mind and her powers back. And Longshot and Dazzler appear back on the scene. They get a good shot at Rogue. Basically, they just free everyone who's been like mentally taken over by the seductress the temptress 
so that the rest of the X-Men are basically back to normal, except Wolverine has made his way to the Christian amphitheater performance, and he's injured and fucked up, is just, like, dragging himself along, and the reverend comes over to see him, sees he's hurt, and... Basically, Wolverine starts, like, transforming into a brood, and the Reverend treats this as if Wolverine has, like, a literal demon possessing him, and he does the whole, like, father who are in heaven talk to Wolverine as Wolverine's healing factor knocks the brood pregnancy out finally, but for all intents and purposes visually... This preacher has prayed the brood away. Yeah, it's um he's just like, oh damn, uh it's a literal demon. Holy cow. <laughs> it's like, uh, gonna quickly try and do this. <laughs> and it does actually work, but only because like it's just Wolverine's healing factor. Like all of this is sci-fi alien stuff, but it looks like in this context, it seems like a religious thing. Um, this is when the brood now show up at the uh, the sort of big outdoor amphitheater because the fight kind of moved to the outskirts of it already. That's how Wolverine wound up here. Um, Havoc immediately kills one of them, uh, not even hesitating this time, and he's like worried that now that he started killing, it's going to become easier for him to do it. But of course, while he's worrying about that, he nearly gets killed because Havoc's just too wound up in his own shit. The X-Men start taking out all of them one by one. Um, the last brood left is Harry Palmer, who has grabbed William Conover, the Reverend's wife, and is holding her hostage and says, you called us demons, Reverend. That's as good a name as any. Consider us the new masters of your world. The day of the human hegemony are over. Uh, at which point Wolverine is stuck under the stage, jumps up out of it, and drags Harry Palmer down under the stage, where underneath it he reverts fully into his human form, you know, and, like, doesn't remember them at all. And Wolverine doesn't hesitate, puts his claws through the guy's head and kills him. Yeah. And seemingly, this is the last of the brood, and the X-Men have saved the day, and the newscasters arrive to ask the Reverend about what's happened, and the Reverend sets things straight, says that the X-Men, the mutants, did not cause the danger, but in fact saved everyone. And it's just this, like, here I am as a preacher who believes in humanity and diversity sort of moment, like happy ending speech that's telecasted. And, you know, it would be a happy ending except we have the panel of the one remaining, like, EMT brood from earlier just deviously smiling off to the side because no one ever figured out that she was a brood too. So here's our lingering little possibility of fret later that I don't remember ever really getting picked up on specifically as the... I have no idea. I'd have to look it up, but, like, yeah... And Mrs. Conover as well is also safe. And she approaches her husband during the speech. And he remarks that her hands seem to be healed. 
because she had gone off of the EMT. So she is also presumably probably the second brood now left alive. She's the brood queen. He's going to go to heaven. Apparently. And the issue basically ends with Wolverine congratulating Havoc on having done what he needed to do. But Havoc just feels sick, is not happy. And the actual closing image is on Madeline's unconscious body on the floor of the X-Men's base. More dramatic captioning about just how she's been transfigured by a dream that's fast on the way to becoming reality. Because again, Inferno. And she's laid in exactly the same position as she is in the dream in the Goblin Queen outfit. Yeah. Inferno is coming. But not until after a green and pleasant land, the first Genosha arc, which was possibly going to be my pick for this pick. Like, I, I had to pick an outback, and I decided on this one because I knew you loved the brood. But uh, next time we cover X-Men shit, I've got to do I've got to do Green and Pleasant Land. Uh, everyone should read Outback X-Men. Outback X-Men rocks. There's not that much of it, and it's all good. Yeah, and this story was also specifically good because it's half brood and half Madeline Pryor. It would be hard to fuck that up. Any last notes, or are we good to wrap up on the brood? Uh, let's wrap up, because we've got to find out what I'm reading next week. So next week will be part two in my thesis that 2001 is a high mark for X-Men. We are going to be reading X-Force, um, the original X-Force series, volume one. And we will be reading issue numbers... 116 and 117 so it's just two issues it is the beginning of the peter milligan michael allred era that would later go on to be known as ecstatics nice all right well i'm excited for that because that's been on my list for a while it's great and our second allred episode yeah so look forward to that it's on marvel unlimited We'll see you then. Thank you for listening and bye. Be excellent to each other.